So I know while I was gone, Ken opened a new sermon series. It's called Why Christian? I was actually inspired by the name of a conference that my wife Rachel spoke at about two years ago now, where they asked 10 people or so to speak and just simply answer the question, why are you a Christian? Or, as the case may be, why are you still a Christian? Given all the terrible things that have been done in the name of Jesus, or given just the racism, misogyny, homophobia that you've experienced within your church communities, what keeps you going? So I think Ken last week said Ken, Rachel's preaching this week. She's preaching next week. She's going to give an amended version of the talk that she gave there, which was really good. I might be biased, but it was really good. She got the first standing ovation. But this morning, I want to answer this question. Um, I'm going to answer it actually in a really personal way. And this is a little bit different, so it's actually got me a little bit nervous. And I'm like never nervous speaking. So I'm going to start by telling a story. So when I was 27, this was almost 13 years ago now, I attended a a large conference that was held by my former denomination. And the national director got up, and after he spoke, he invited everyone under the age of 30 to come up to the stage. This was in like a really, really big mega church with a big auditorium. And so he asked everybody under 30 to come up, and he said that he'd like to pray for us. And so I went up, along with several dozen other young people, And he started to pray for us. There's like music going. And as he started to pray for us, like something really um, peculiar started happening in my body. And I started to shake and I started to cry. And I felt this, um, like a weightiness, like in a good way that we sometimes identify as the presence of God, maybe, but I felt something. And it was so heavy that I felt like I couldn't stand up. And so I got on my knees and I just started to pray and I was praying out loud to myself and as I prayed, I realized that the words that were coming out of my mouth were not English words. And I was familiar with the Pentecostal idea of like speaking in tongues. I grew up in a charismatic Christian tradition, but this really surprised me because it sounded different than sometimes that I had experienced it before. And I'm going to pause right here for some of you who maybe don't come from this kind of background and you might be thinking, okay, this sounds a little bit weird. You know, I've heard of these groups that speak in tongues and then the snakes come out and weird stuff happens. You know, I'm a Pentecostal. I would say I'm not that kind of Pentecostal. But speaking in tongues, or we sometimes say having a prayer language, is a phenomenon that's mentioned in the New Testament and it's widely accepted in a lot of Orthodox Christianity, including the Catholic, the Episcopalian churches, the Orthodox Church. It's certainly not something that I think everyone experiences or needs to. And I think it might simply be a product of like a particular meditative state, like that it accesses a certain part of your brain. But I'm telling this story because one of the main reasons I'm still Christian is because of the mystical side of our faith. The idea that there are mysterious things that take place that are unexplainable in my mind and that seem to foster a connection with the divine. So with that said, I prayed in this this new tongue, and as I was praying on my knees, I kept hearing an English phrase in my head, and that English phrase was, you will see Tibet, you will see Tibet, you will see Tibet. And as all this was going on, I saw in my mind's eye an elderly woman who was crouched on the side of a mountain. And as I continued, that repetitive phrase in my mind started to transfer into like praying for that woman. And as I'm praying for that woman that I was seeing in my mind, I just felt like God held her in high esteem. 
and that God really honored this woman's faithfulness and her hope and her desire to pursue like love and wisdom. And so I'm praying in English in my mind while these like foreign to me words are coming out of my mouth, almost like I was like internally translating my own sentences. And whether or not that's the case, I don't know. But I would just say I was reaching a state of what you might call like deep meditation. And this went on for some time. For those of you who are like way old timers, if you remember Alan Crow, he was there with me, like praying with me. And I don't know, maybe an hour passed. I feel like when you reach that kind of a prayer state, sometimes time just sort of evaporates. And then it stopped, or when I stopped, or whatever. And I remember thinking at that point, okay, either that was the most real thing that I've ever experienced, or I'm starting to lose it. I mean, like, I mean, I was a little bit concerned for myself. It was like, I might be losing my grip on reality or maybe I'm caught up in some kind of like ecstatic spiritual state because of the suggestive environment that I was in. And I was just like, God, if you're here, could you give me some kind of sign that that was real? And so that same voice that I had heard in my head as I prayed, the one that was saying, you will see Tibet, said, see that young woman over there, go pray for her brother, his name is Jeremy. And then that was, that made me nervous. I was like, gosh, that's specific. What if I go over there and she doesn't have a brother named Jeremy? And there's all sorts of consequences to what that would mean for me. Like, I really am making all this up. Um, so I took that risk because I felt like I needed to know. And I, I sometimes like put a caveat in here. You know, there's a fine line. So there, there's, a, there's an anthropologist at Stanford named Tanya Lerman. Some of you read her book a few years back and she studies the line between people who feel like they have spiritual experiences and schizophrenics like people who hear voices. And she said, there's a fine line, but there is actually a difference. That book is called When God Talks Back, if you're ever interested in it. She actually preached um, for us a few years back. So I was just like, okay, Lord, is this self-talk? Is this something else going on? I have no diagnoses, anything like that. So I went up to this woman and I said that God had maybe asked me to pray for her brother, Jeremy. And it turned out the woman did have a brother. He was a brother-in-law, but his name was Jeremy and he was in jail. And so we prayed for him together. And I just sort of made a little mental note of what happened that night because for me, it felt like a real signpost in my life. It felt like one of those things I could like hold on to. And that's the reason that I share that particular story. I mean, I feel like I've had experiences of God that are much less dramatic than that, but this one had a tidbit of like concrete information that has helped me hold on to that experience and accept it as perhaps real. And I'm not alone, I don't think, in holding on to mystical experiences. Many of you have probably had something in your life where you're like, that just seemed odd. That seemed like something that wasn't me. In the last century, we've seen an explosion of the Pentecostal movement worldwide. And I think sometimes that's almost like a global protest against the dehumanizing, brushing aside of experience as we're starting to re-engage with this experiential part of our spiritual nature, this experience of a living God who is love, I think is one of the most important and incredible parts of Christianity. And after the Enlightenment, a lot of the Western church just started disregarding these kinds of prayer experiences because they're so subjective. And not everybody has them, and I think that's okay. But I'm loath to ignore the testimony of so many Christians and theologians and mystics that have come down through the millennia 
I mean, because while Pentecostalism has struck a nerve worldwide here in the last century or two, you know, the Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox churches were really bastions of prayer and of mysticism for much of church history. So I've experienced usually much less dramatic encounters with Jesus in prayer that have been, I mean, it's really my main source of comfort and guidance in life. And I believe that if Jesus is a living agency, you know, that's the Christian claim, that Jesus is alive, then the Holy Spirit is the way that this God, or the way that Jesus leads us. So Jesus says this in John 16, he says, I have much more to say to you. He's speaking to his disciples, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all of the truth. He will not speak on his own, he'll only speak what he hears and he'll tell you what is yet to come. And he'll glorify me because it's from me that he'll receive what is made known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine, and this is why I say that the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. All right, so when Jesus ascended into heaven there, he wasn't standing there telling his disciples, okay, you guys, that's it. You're on your own now. You know, you guys have enough stories about me, and eventually people will write them down in a couple of decades, and then in about 300 years, they'll compile them into something, and you'll call it a New Testament, and, you know, have fun with that. No, he said, I have much more to say to you, more than you can bear. But when the spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all of the truth, right? So the idea is that Jesus continues to give revelation to those who follow him. And he doesn't say that the scripture will lead us into all truth. He says the Holy Spirit will lead us into all truth. And this is a spirit that most certainly works through scripture, but is not limited to the scripture. There's a great ethicist, theologian, his name is Miguel de la Torre. And he wrote a book called Reading the Bible from the Margins. And I like this quote of his. He says, readers should always submit their interpretation of the Bible to the Holy Spirit. Reading the text within the marginalized body of faith, right, within the body of people, especially those who have been oppressed, and remaining always cognizant of the basic purpose of the gospel, that Jesus Christ in the gospel of John said, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Right, so if we're looking to be led into some kind of truth, and I would say that in Christianity, truth is a person with whom we have relationship. It's not like a set of propositions that we're just ascribing to. Then we're open to a dynamic connection with this Holy Spirit, which leads us into greater relationship with the living Jesus, who is the embodiment of a God who is love, and that should bring us life. And I know, like, this is like abstract stuff here. I'm going to get even more abstract in a minute. But given the way that some people use personal spiritual experience to justify harmful actions, I can really understand the reflex to be cautious about such things, right? And I think we should be cautious. And I think we should be thinking about spiritual encounters within the context of community and within the context of tried and true guidelines that the church has used. Right, this is what um, Ken and I are writing a little bit about this in the book that we're writing together. And we're calling these things means of grace. These are the ways that we discern whether something we're hearing is of God. Means of grace. And they include the Bible. They also include community, our life experiences, our practices, our spiritual practices, and reason. So if you come from a Methodist tradition, like I know Andrea comes from, well, and, and Adam does too, come from Methodist tradition or the Caruths who aren't here today, you know that like, there's like the Wesleyan quadrilateral. I won't say it like you should know. There's no reason you should know unless you're Methodist. But the Methodists say they use scripture, reason, experience, and tradition 
to decide whether something is of God. And essentially, Ken and I, in the book that we're writing, we're adding a couple of things to that. We're saying that, you know, we also can add some of our spiritual practices, but we're also adding the Holy Spirit and let what we're actually hearing from the Holy Spirit as driving that. And that the primary thing isn't the scripture, but it's all of these things in tandem working together, some of them more useful than others in various situations. And I would say that just because our discernment is sometimes awry, because discernment can be hard, and moves of the Spirit can be very messy, that doesn't mean that the Spirit isn't at work, right? Communicating with people. John 3, Jesus says, the wind, the spirit blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. And I think as scary as that sounds, there's an element of us not being able to control either the narrative of the Holy Spirit or the actions of the Holy Spirit, right? It says the spirit does what it does and what we do is we judge the outcomes by the fruit. Like we judge the outcomes of that by the experience, like what the experiences produce. So I would ask, are your spiritual encounters, are people you know, are they leading people, are they leading you into more love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? Right, that's what Paul describes as the fruit of the spirit. Is it leading you and shaping you into being that kind of person? Or are those spiritual encounters inducing anxiety and fear or are they being used by somebody to bolster power? That is often how they can be misused. You know, when I lived in Western China, I studied the Amdo Tibetan language. I was studying with a private tutor. He was a young Buddhist man of about 20. He was, he was a sweetie, actually. I got kind of a kick out of him. He had really great English. And so we got to know each other over several months. And so one morning he was there tutoring me. He was in my living room. And he told me about a vision that he had had while he was praying. And in the vision, he told me that a man dressed in white had handed him a ball of light. And he said, I think that man was Jesus handing me wisdom. And at first I wasn't sure why he told me because I hadn't actually told them that I was Christian. And I think that he just assumed that because I'm American, that probably I was Christian and so maybe I'm the only Christian he knows. So he wanted to ask me about it. So he wanted to dialogue about this as well as some other visions that he had had that contained a lot of Buddhist symbols. And so he talked and mainly I was listening. And as he spoke, I was just thinking, man, is this the spirit of love communicating with him? Is this the spirit of love that's inviting him to consider just another stream to supplement his thirst for spiritual wisdom? Because he was very thirsty. And I just think, who can know for sure? But that's what it seemed like to me. This was a man who had no prior Christian learning. He'd read a few odd articles on the internet. I think I might have shared this actually in another thing. He'd read, he'd read something and he was so earnest when he asked me. He was like, I read that the Holy Spirit is a literal dove that comes and when it lands on people, it lights them on fire. And I was like, no, that's not exactly, it's close, <laughs> but no. So over the, the months, he continued having dreams where he felt like the Christian God was communicating with him and guiding him. And ecstatic spiritual encounters occur in many religions. In fact, they probably occur in all religions. And I think perhaps that the human capacity to have these experiences is of God. That it's a way that the divine relates to us regardless of our context, even when we don't fully understand it. You know, Christianity proclaims that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And if we believe this, then truth is a person, right? I'll say that again. Truth is a person with whom we have relationship. It's a presence. It's available to all through the spirit. 
And it's a presence that mysteriously holds all things together. So this is where we're gonna get really abstract for those of you who are, who are a little more mystical on the mystical side. Paul, the apostle, was quite mystical. He wrote this in Colossians. He says, the son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. In him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. So I don't know if you're getting sort of the, the Christian imagination here of what's going on, that there's a divine being that we call God or Yahweh or Jehovah who is love, who was personified in Jesus, who showed us how to live and was killed doing so, and then his spirit and it's saying that everything in the heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, is held together in this divine spirit that is love. And so I thought, you know, perhaps while meditating, my Tibetan friend tapped into this permeating presence of love and the all-encompassing invitation to know and to be known by this spirit. You know, when God told me that I would see Tibet, and he let me have that vision of that old lady, elderly woman, sorry, I should say, on the mountains, sorry, Grandma, she wouldn't like it. You're not old, come on. <laughs> you know, when I first had that, I never understood that experience to be like a directive from God. I don't know if that makes sense. Like, you will see Tibet and showing me this picture. Like, I always hold those things loosely and think it's more like an invitation. It's not like if you don't go or if this doesn't happen, you know, something bad's gonna happen to you. It's more like... God's saying, you will see Tibet, and here is something, like there's something for you there if you accept the invitation. I believe in free will, right, and kind of an open system, and I did end up there, and I felt like my vision, you know, contained that glimpse of a path that could happen but wasn't inevitable, and I'd also noticed that the voice that I had heard in my head didn't say something like, go to Tibet as soon as possible, or go find that old woman that you saw on the hill while she, you were praying, or even go convert that woman to faith in Jesus. That, that isn't what the voice told me. The voice just said I would see Tibet. And I think it's important that we be cautious and not reading more into these experiences um, than is actually there. And so I did see Tibet. I lived in Western China for three years. And I think I did actually meet that woman in the vision. Right before I moved back to America, about two weeks, I had gone back to move and a part of me honestly thought I would, that she wasn't a real person. I thought that in my mind, she might be some sort of like metaphorical or symbolic thing, you know, something, some way that God was just showing me that there are sheep that are not of the sheep pen. To quote John, this is John 10. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for my sheep. And Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them also, and they too will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. And it says the Jews who heard these words were divided, and many of them said he's demon-possessed. He's raving mad. Why would you listen to him? But then others said... These aren't the sayings of a demon-possessed man. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So when I saw this elderly woman at Tibetan Buddhist monastery, something in me stirred, and I was a little surprised. I thought, 
she wasn't quite real. And I thought, well, maybe this is more than just a symbol. So I was in a town that was high in the Himalayas. We were up above the tree line, right? So there's like no trees, we're in a valley. And a few of my friends and I had visited this village. And the village was built around a giant Tibetan Buddhist monastery. So the monastery is like several buildings, including temples, but all sorts of other buildings. Very few Westerners visit there. It's about a mile in circumference. And as you walk along, I'll just describe it a little bit. So if you guys ever seen in Tibetan Buddhism, like they have these prayer wheels that spin, those are called manes. They fill them with prayers inside of them and they believe that the more they spin them, the more good karma they would have. Right, so that would be one of my small critiques of Buddhism, just as I have critiques of our, of our religion, and that's that they feel like they have to earn God's grace or earn a better, well, they would say rebirth. As to where in the Christian faith, we would say, no, God's grace is free. You don't have to earn anything. But in the Tibetan Buddhist belief, so you, they spin these prayer wheels, and then all around the monasteries, they have giant prayer wheels, these giant manes, and they're all filled with prayers. I mean, they're bigger than me. Some of them are as big as a room. And you go around and you push them. So you walk around the entire thing, I mean, around a whole mile, and you just walk around, you know, just spinning these prayer wheels. And in fact, many people actually wear like special gloves so that they don't get blisters. You know, it's like little things that you learn. So we were just kind of strolling along. I was there with a couple of friends. I think it was one other American, two people from Northeast India, and a Romanian guy who's become a good friend. And um, we were walking around this monastery and we spotted these three older women. And one of them happened to be a little bit older than the rest. She was probably in her mid to late 80s, maybe a little bit older. And so I asked a friend who spoke better Tibetan than me and who knew the specific local dialect because it's very different depending on where you go if she would help me communicate with this woman. And so this woman was like waving at us because we're foreigners and she's like, come over here. So she directed me to sit beside her. So I went over on the bench. She's sitting along a bench on the side of this monastery and we just exchanged some niceties, you know, like what's your name? Where are you from? Do you have children? And so she had one of those little money wheels and she's sitting there and her two other friends are sitting off to the side kind of giggling at us. They could have been her daughters, but they were still older women. And so since she was clearly a woman of prayer, I just asked her if I could pray with her. And she said, sure. So I put my hand on her shoulder and I just started praying that God would bless her and God would bless her family and her health. And then she started crying. She just started weeping. And then she started shaking. And she's shaking and she's crying. And so then I started to pray in my prayer language. And I just figured, well, whatever's going on, we'll just let the spirit know how to pray and I figured she's not going to know the difference if it's English or something else. So I'm just praying and then she started to pray and I don't know if she was praying for me in return or whether she was praying for something in her own life but what I do know is that the, in that space with the two of us praying there was like a meeting of two souls and like an energy exchange that I can't explain and I, was, I, I don't want to romanticize it and I don't want to like make it this like quaint story, but there was something powerful that went on there that has really stuck out to me. And it was like we were praying as one, but we were praying in two different languages. These women from two different parts of the world, she much older than me, in this weird little encounter. And she's just crying and crying. And that experience has been probably even more profound to me than the original vision that I had had. And I, I, my hope is that she went away feeling blessed and loved. It just felt like God was almost like honoring her desire to seek truth and love and wisdom. 
And like God gave us a glimpse into that like mysterious liminal threshold between this world and, and the next where humans meet the divine. You know, there's that sort of intermingling, that mystical space where we all connect. And I would say that we live in the age of the spirit. We live in this time in our collective human history where God's spirit has been unleashed into the world and it's at work and it's romancing us and it's roaming and it's trying to help connect those who are desperately seeking some kind of connection between God and humankind. And for all of the mess and misappropriation of Jesus's name, we still hold that this spirit works in this complex system, even in our weird political system going on. We hold that the spirit is working and it's working for our good and it's breaking down barriers that divide us. And so part of what makes me Christian, specifically, is that the name that I give this spirit is synonymous with Jesus, who I believe demonstrated the nature and character of God as love when he became a human. 1 John 4, 7, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. That's quite a statement. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. So in another couple of weeks, I preach again in this sermon series, and that's, I think, what I'm going to focus on, the idea of God being love, including that radical notion that we are to love our enemies is one of the other main reasons I'm Christian. But I would say embracing the Trinity, God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, this mysterious oneness as that revelation of the connective tissue of the known and the unknown universe and accessible to us humans is crucial to my faith path. Right? So if somebody said, why are you still Christian? I'd have several answers, but my main one would be Jesus, the Jesus who reveals God's very nature as sacrificial love and who is accessible here and now to guide us in this life. And I believe God can be accessed by everyone. Luke 11, Jesus says, so I say to you, ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receive, receives, the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Right, so we cultivate practices that people have testified that help them access this God through the years, right? It's prayer and fasting and meditation and silence. It's one of the reasons that we practice silence and meditation at the end of each sermon series here, so, or every sermon. So I'm gonna invite you right now, that if you would like to, that we're gonna spend a couple minutes just meditating and trying to access this spirit that permeates the world. Just invite you to just sort of relax, we're generally quiet, but people and babies make noise. I'm gonna do just a little guided meditation. I, I would invite you that as we're settling in and taking some deep breaths, to picture a space maybe that brings you a lot of calmness. Maybe it's a place, like I was picturing a place on water. And just spend some time like listening to that space, listening to the sounds, smelling it, and really inhabiting that peaceful place.
As you're sitting there, you hear footsteps coming up behind you. And Jesus comes and he sits beside you. As we sit in the silence, I would just, just open yourself to mentioning something to Jesus while he's sitting there. It could be something that's bringing you a lot of joy that you want to share with him, or it could be something that's causing you a lot of heartache or stress. And just simply say it in your mind to him. And then we'll just make ourselves open that if he wants to say something in return. May the peace of Jesus, the embodiment of the God who is in love, who is love, be with you and guide you in this week. Amen.